you came in this evening and you do not yet have a sheet, would you raise your hand? We want to make certain everyone has a study sheet. They've been placing the larger number of them at the major entrance into the sanctuary because they're trying to teach up uh, the proper way of rooting up, uh, not only on Wednesday nights, but on Sundays, and I'm sure you can appreciate that. Tonight, that normally would not be covered in a Bible study, but that I feel are important for our appreciation of what Mark wishes to tell us. We're going to look once again at the matter of the structure of the Gospel of Mark, and we're going to learn from that. You have already learned one or two new vocabulary words, through our work together, the word intercalation, which speaks about the so-called sandwich device, where Mark will begin to tell you a narrative in which Jesus is involved. He'll disrupt it or interrupt it with a parallel narrative, and then he'll round off that first narrative, what we've described as an A, B, A prime approach. And tonight you're going to learn perhaps another new word, perhaps a word that you've never heard used in a sermon or a teaching session, but which I think has some genuine usefulness as we begin to speak of the period of withdrawal beyond Galilee, where Jesus takes his disciples into seclusion and begins to deal pointedly with them because there were features of their response to his person and message that needed to be confronted. So we're going to listen to the structure of Mark, and we're going to listen to it first in terms of the question, how do you determine the beginning and the end of a new section? Notice that Mark will use a narrative device that scholars call inclusio, and there is the new word. You recognize it as a Latin uh, formation. But what inclusio simply means is that you bracket a unit of text by a very similar beginning and ending to the unit. And just as we came up with the alternative expression, the sandwich device, let's speak of the bookshelf, or the bookends, rather, device. And let me show that to you in the text. We suggested that the end of the previous section was in chapter 6, verse 7 to 13, where Jesus sends the disciples out two by two. Now listen to the beginning of the new section. Chapter 6, 14. Through 16. King Herod heard about this. Namely, he had heard about Jesus. He had heard about the sending out of the disciples two by two. He was the governor of both Galilee and the province of Perea. It was his business to have spies and secret agents who fed him information, 
he had heard about Jesus and the mighty works that had taken place through the hands of Jesus. King Herod heard about this for Jesus' name had become well known. Some were saying, John the Baptist has been raised from the dead. And that is why miraculous powers are at work in him. In other words, it was the mighty works of Jesus that caused Herod to say, how can I explain this? How can I explain the power over the demonic? How can I explain the quieting of the wind and the waves? How can I explain the crowds of people from not only my territories, but from beyond my territories that keep on making their way to Jesus? How can I explain the healing which have so excited the people? One obvious answer was, John the Baptist has been raised from the dead, and the miraculous power is Elijah. That is an allusion to Mark, I mean rather to Malachi, chapter 3, and verse 1, where you have the word that I'm going to send my messenger before my face. And as the chapter unfolds, God says through his prophet Malachi that before that great day of the Lord, the day of judgment, before that day which will burn like an oven, God is going to set Elijah. It's Malachi chapter 4, verse 5. See, I will send you the prophet Elijah before that great and dreadful day of the Lord comes. He will turn the hearts of the fathers to their children and the hearts of the children to their fathers, or else I will come and strike the land with a curse. Israel had violated the covenant stipulation that put them in a special relationship with the Lord God. God says you have two options, blessing or curse. And if you don't allow your heart to be turned toward me, then I will send and strike the earth with a curse. Others said he is Elijah. And still others claim he is a prophet, like one of the prophets of long ago. Now, all of these answers indicate people are talking about Jesus. You can't come face to face with the reports of all that has transpired through the person of Jesus without being caught up in the discussion. And you will either take a stand with Jesus or you will take a stand against him. He is not the kind of person that you can say, I'm going to wait a while, see how things sort out. I'm going to seek to be neutral. I'm going to sit on the fence for a while. No, you are either tonight saying yes to Jesus or you are saying no to Jesus. There is no middle ground. And that's what makes him such a disturbing presence. He forces the issue and faith and unbelief come to the surface in terms of the person of Jesus. Now all of these answers, this is John, this is Elijah, 
he is one of the other prophets, are essentially the same. Jesus is a prophetic figure. They're good answers, but not wholly adequate answers. Then verse 16, but when Herod heard this, he said, John, the man I beheaded has been raised from the dead. Now let me tell you something about Herod. He was an Idumean. And Idumeans were dismissed by most of the Jews in Judea, Galilee, Perea, elsewhere, as being simply half-Jews. They were a people who had been forcibly brought within the framework of the family of Israel early in the first century before Jesus was born. They had been forcibly circumcised, forcibly made Jews. Herod had so little respect for the Jewish tradition that he built as his capital, Tiberius, on the site of an ancient Jewish cemetery. If you know anything about the book of Leviticus, you know you cannot have contact with the dead without being rendered Levitically unclean. Herod cared nothing for this. By choosing Tiberius, as in the site of an ancient Jewish cemetery, he was saying, in essence, I thumb my nose at the Jews. I don't want any Jews in my capital. So here is a secular ruler, ostensibly Jewish, but really caring nothing for the traditions of the scriptures or the traditions of his people. And yet, in his superstitious mind, he is haunted by the person of John, the baptizer, who had fascinated him. And he has such a guilty conscience that he says, this is John whom I beheaded. This is the consequence of my callous action. Now, what follows in verses 17 to 29 is the device of flashback. You remember in chapter 1 of the Gospel of Mark that we had read in verse 14. After John was put in prison, Jesus went into Galilee proclaiming the good news of God. We knew nothing about the circumstances under which John had been imprisoned. But now Mark fills in the story for you. And so what we have essentially in verses 14, or rather verses uh, 17 through 29, is a flashback of the circumstances that led to the beheading of John. It's a very effective narrative device. Now you've seen one of the bookends. It's chapter 6, 14 to 16. Now turn to the second bookend. You'll find it in chapter 8 and verse 27, and particularly verse 28. 
Jesus and his disciples went on to the villages around Caesarea Philippi. On the way he asked them, who do men say, or who do people say I am? They replied, some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, and still others, one of the prophets. We knew that. We knew it because Mark began the section with the account of why this question even came up. Jesus takes the initiative, says, what are people saying? And then he takes the initiative a second time and says, what about you? What do you have to say? And we look at that more closely. But it is obvious that six verses 14 to 16 anticipate chapter 8, verses 27 to 28, a little unit that extends to 8.30. So our new unit, withdrawal from Galilee, is going to be embraced by these two bookends by the device of an inclusio, that is, everything included in the area is embraced by chapter 6, 14 to 16, and chapter 8, 27 to 30. So notice point two. The new section introduced by 6, 14, and extending to 8, 30, focuses upon a period which, during which Jesus frequently withdrew beyond the borders of Galilee. Now, I'd like to suggest to you that the key to this new section is going to be the striking concern with bread. Very early in the section, we're going to have the remarkable account of the feeding of the 5,000. It has to do with the provision of bread in the wilderness, chapter 6, 35 to 44. There's going to be a second account of feeding. In chapter 8, 1 through 10, the provision of bread in the region of the Decapolis, where the audience is not Jewish, but Gentile, or at least mixed. Because the Decapolis was a region originally a confederacy of ten Hellenistic cities that banded together to say, in essence, how do we keep up our own pagan existence in the midst of a sea of Judaism? How can we be an island of paganism in a sea of Judaism? Very interesting. Clearly, the feeding of the 5,000 has to do with the provision of need for Jewish men and women and children. But Jesus' heart and compassion extends to the Gentiles as well. And that's one of the indications. And then I point out there is the recurrence of the word bread throughout this section. Unfortunately, your translations will almost certainly disguise that point. Take a look at chapter 6, verse 52, and I'm reading from the New International Version, which is a very responsible translation. They were completely amazed, for they had not understood 
about the loaves. The term is bread. Their hearts were hardened. Take a look at chapter 7, verse 2. The Pharisees and some of the teachers of the law who had come from Jerusalem gathered around Jesus and saw some of his disciples eating food with hands that were unclean, that is, unwashed. The term is eating bread. Look at verse 28. It has to do with the faith of a woman from Tyre north of Herod's territory. Yes, Lord, she replied, but even the dogs under the table eat the children's crumbs. But the term is the children's bread. And then clearly in 8.14 to 21, near the end of this section, the disciples had forgotten to bring bread except for one loaf they had with them in the boat. Be careful, Jesus warned them. Watch out for the yeast of the Pharisees and that of Herod. They discussed this with one another and said, it said, it is because we have no bread. Finally, they come through and tell you the key term is bread. Now, what follows is Jesus underscoring the importance of the two feeding miracles. And that is in response to the misunderstanding of Jesus on the part of the disciples that is praised to their failure to understand the significance of the abundant provision of bread. So watch for that throughout this section. Four. This is where the rubber hits the road. This is where we begin to swerve. The accent in this new section falls on the instruction of the disciples whose hardness of heart, whose unbelief, whose failure to understand is a prominent element in the record. Now, of course, this has no relevance for you. I know there is no hardness of heart represented here this evening. No unbelief. No inability to understand. But just in case there is one or two who face that problem, actually, it's an encouraging fact. Because Jesus entrusted the gospel to disciples who were hard in their hearts, filled with unbelief, and with incomprehension. And that means there is room for me in the disciples, and room for you as well. Never give up on yourself. Once the Lord begins to work in your life so that you are aware of it. Because He will bring you beyond unbelief. He will bring you beyond hardness of heart. He will bring you beyond 
the failure to understand. But let's be aware that that's one of the key themes in this section. Finally, a climax in Mark's narrative is achieved in 8.27-29. through 29, When Jesus and the disciples approach Caesarea Philippi, where Jesus' dignity as Messiah is acknowledged for the first time, and we saw very early on in our studies that Mark anticipates this moment with the opening line of his gospel, the beginning of the apostolic preaching concerning Jesus the Messiah. So that the words, you are the Messiah, were already anticipated in that opening line. And anticipation proves to be another narrative device that Mark will use to get our attention and to keep it. Well, we can learn a great deal, therefore, about how do you determine the limits of the new section. But it is the bookend approach that is very helpful in this unit. Now let's listen to the structure of Mark from a different point of view. And that's the importance of the confession. And here is one of the great surprises of this section. In chapter 8, 1 through 30, Mark presents a sequence of events which is parallel in structure to the theme, parallel in structure and theme to 631 through 7. 37. In other words, Jesus will go through a sequence of actions, a sequence of events and encounters, and then he will repeat that sequence a second time. And Mark wants you to recognize this parallel. For the tradition that he records in 817 through 21 points back to the crucial importance of the two seeding narratives. Now I'm going to develop that point for you in just a moment. But take a look at the little chart at the bottom of page 1. Corresponding to the feeding of the 5,000 in 631 to 44 is the feeding of the multitude in chapter 8, 1 through 9 the feeding of the 4,000. In each case, those feeding miracles are followed by the crossing of the sea and landing. Notice that, for example, in chapter 6. And all I'll do is pick up at verse 53. When they had crossed over, they landed at Gennesaret and anchored there. Corresponding to that, in chapter 8, verse 10, having sent the crowd away, Jesus got into the boat with his disciples and went to the region of Dalmanutha, the crossing of the lake, and landing. What follows in the first cycle is a 
an extended conflict with the Pharisees over the issue of defilement. What is it that makes a person unclean? You may well know that there were a whole tradition, there was a whole tradition of law and of lore that sharpened how you ought to conduct yourself. And simply the matter of washing your hands before you ever picked up any grain or a piece of fruit and put it into your mouth, that was simply a tiny portion of that tradition. And what Jesus does in the first encounter with the Pharisees is he exposes the tension between Scripture and the tradition. And the end result, Mark tells us, and a little parenthetical aside to us is, he made all food clean. That it isn't what, it isn't what we take into our mouth that defiles us. It is what comes out of the heart. And Jesus makes that very clear. Corresponding to that is a shorter conflict with the Pharisees in chapter 8, 11 to 13. The Pharisees came and began to question Jesus. To test him, they asked him for a sign from heaven. He sighed deeply and says, Why does this generation ask? a sign. Here the NIV doesn't help us because it says ask for a miraculous sign, which is a common misunderstanding that a sign from heaven was another miracle. If I stand in the presence of miracles and all I can see is demonic activity, no number of miracles that you're going to offer to me is going to be helpful. I just dismiss it with a blanket indictment, demonic activity. A sign from heaven is rather a pointer that God is acting in a particular way. It is not normally a miracle. It is a pointer to the fact that God is validating authenticating a particular ministry, and that's what the Pharisees are asking about. What will authenticate your ministry to us? Why does this generation ask for authentication? I tell you the truth, no authentication, no sign will be given to it. Then he left them, got into the boat, and crossed to the other side. Going back to the first cycle, that conflict with the Pharisees is followed by a conversation about bread. Jesus was in a private home. The family was gathered at the table. Father, mother, children. Underneath the table were small household dogs. And a woman comes and says, My daughter is in deep trouble. Come with me. Lay your hands upon her. 
and make her well. Jesus said, it wouldn't be appropriate to take the children's bread. Meaning the children of that family and allow the little household dogs to have access to it. He knows as soon as the family gets up, as soon as the table is left, those dogs are going to be on the table. And the woman cleverly answers, he did not call the woman a dog. I've seen comments along those lines, you dog. It isn't true at all. He is talking about the actual household situation. And the woman cleverly turns it and says, I'm not asking for you to take the children's bread and give it to the household dog. By those little dogs, they eat the crumbs that fall on the table, fall from the table. There can be a feeding of the children and a feeding of the dogs at the same time. And Jesus is delighted with her answer. and says, go home. Your daughter is well, and indeed from that moment, she was indeed well. Well, that conversation about bread in a household finds its parallel in the second cycle in a conversation about bread with the disciples. Then very interesting. There is an account of the healing of a man who is deaf and who has a severe speech impediment, 731 to 36. And the counterpart is that account found only in Mark, where the healing of a man who was blind takes place in two stages, 822 to 26. The last element in the parallel is the confession of faith. Those who brought the deaf and speech impediment or speech impaired man to Jesus say, he has done everything well. It is a confession of what Jesus has done and who he is. Why he makes deaf ones, it's plural, deaf ones to hear dumb ones to speak. And in the case, of course, of 827 to 30, you have the great confession, you are the Messiah. Now my guess is, unless you were prepared to read Mark again and again, you might not have seen this parallel. But the way I think about it is, my experience, when I had to take advanced biology in the university. I remember showing up at the first time we were going to work with a microscope. We put a slide underneath it. I looked down, I saw nothing. All I saw was blur. But then the lab assistant came and said, let me make a tiny adjustment for you. And all of a sudden, a world I had never seen came into my purview. That's who I am tonight. I'm the lab assistant. I come in and say, in each section, exhibit marked differences in vocabulary 
and formulation. They have been drawn from independent cycles of tradition consisting of different episodes. Now, why do I even stress that to you? Because my guess is there probably isn't anyone here who would take issue with that and say, Bill, I'd like to debate this point with you. The reason I do is that probably 60% of what I call the guild, professional New Testament scholars, for example, believe there was only one feeding miracle in the early Christian tradition. It was the feeding of the 5,000, the one miracle that's found in all four Gospels. But as the story was told again and again, there were certain vocabulary changes and so forth. But you can dismiss the feeding of the 4,000. It never occurred. And chances are you could go to a good biblical library and pull a book off the shelf that would argue that with all of the persuasion the author can muster. Now, that's a very serious position, because in Mark 8, 14 to 21, Jesus makes the occurrence of the two feeding miracles the whole point. And if there was only one feeding miracle, if there was only one event, then the words of Jesus that are given to us in Mark 8, 14 to 21, are either fraudulent or due to Mark's comment on the situation and they have no value whatsoever. And I, for one, am not prepared to accept that position. Why? Because I am an evangelical? Because I am conservative? No! But because there are Mark differences in situation, in detail, and vocabulary. First of all, situation. In Mark 6, 34-44, the feeding of the 5,000, the people are clearly in the wilderness. Jesus exercises compassion toward the people. Because they were like sheep without a shepherd. You know that that's an Old Testament phrase? It is said, for example, when Jehoshaphat was slain in battle. They had no king. Oh, Herod the Great was a governor, but he claimed to be king. And that's the way that Mark presents it. He wanted to be king, but he was only a governor. The people were without proper leadership. And the feeding of the 4,000 why the people have come from a great distance, once again into a wilderness, but there is no detail that speaks about rest in the wilderness, no detail that speaks about sitting down on the green grass, the provision of the promise of Psalm 23 and elsewhere. Now, how long did the people in the feeding of the 5,000 spend with Jesus? One day. How long did the people who were fed and when there were 4,000 present spend with Jesus? Three days. 
but here is one of the most striking differences of all. You remember that following the feeding of the 5,000, Jesus encourages the people to do what Jews always did. They gathered the fragments of the meal and put them in baskets to give to widows and to others who had no provision, we'd say, to the homeless problem. Do you know what the word for basket is there? It's kofinox. And what is a kofinox? It is like a little trout creel that every Jewish man carried on his belt. And you would put in your bread fragments and they would be available. What about the feeding of the 4,000? There, there were only seven baskets, not 12, as in the taking up of the feeding of the 5,000. There were only seven baskets, but do you know what the word for basket is? It's not kofinos. It's spherus. And spherus describes a large rope basket large enough to carry a man. Paul was let down over the wall in Damascus in a spherus. So the seven baskets are actually more than the twelve. Now those details are so distinctive. The vocabulary is so distinctive. Be absolutely certain there were two feedings. One in which Jesus showed great compassion toward the people, the Jewish people, to whom he had come primarily to minister. But the other, he showed great compassion to those who were a very mixed audience, primarily Gentiles. And it is one of the hints that God cares for Gentiles in the midst of the great ministry of Jesus to the Jewish people. I, therefore, strongly accept the tradition that there were two feedings. Having recognized that, Mark is responsible for the arrangement of the material in terms of the motif or the thought of understanding. After both feedings, the failure of the disciples to understand the significance of the sign of the broken bread is stressed. We already looked at chapter 652. Hear it once more. The disciples were completely amazed, for they had not understood about the bread. Their hearts were hardened. And listen to what Jesus says in 814 to 21. The disciples had forgotten to bring bread, except for one loaf they had with them in the boat. Be careful, Jesus warned them, Watched out, watch out for the yeast of the Pharisees and that of Herod. They discussed this with one another and said, It is because we have no bread. Aware of this discussion, Jesus asked them, Why are you talking about having no bread? Do you still not see or understand? Are your hearts hardened? Do you have eyes but fail to see? And ears but fail to hear? And don't you remember? When I broke the five loaves for the five thousand, how many 
Kofinoi, how many basketfuls of pieces did you pick up? Twelve, they replied. And when I broke the seven loaves for the four thousand, how many spirides, how many basketfuls of pieces did you pick up? And they answered, seven. And he said to them, do you still not understand? It is very interesting that the failure to understand what was happening in the two feedings where the broken bread was a sign of God's great compassion for the whole human family is the source of the hardness of the disciples' heart. Now between these two points, Jesus solemnly calls the multitude and the disciples to understand. You'll find it in 7, 14 through 18. Here is the bottom line. By skillful arrangement of the material, Mark indicates it was necessary for Jesus to repeat the sequence of acts and teaching a second time before the significance dawns on the disciples. Their ears remain deaf to Jesus' teaching and their eyes blind to Jesus' glory. That brings us to the significance of the two healing accounts. The opening of the ears of one who is deaf, 731 to 36, and the eyes of one who is blind, 822 to 26, prefigure the opening of the deaf ears of the disciples and the opening of their eyes. This was the necessary prelude to the confession of the messianic dignity of Jesus. Now here is the significance of these two healing accounts. The healing of the man who was deaf and had a severe speech impediment is found only in Mark. No reference to it by Matthew, by Luke, or by John. That is equally true of the second healing, the opening of the eyes of the man who had become blind. That's the first observation I want to make. The second is this. The NIV has a very good translation of the Greek text in chapter 7, 31 to 36. And I call your attention to verse 32. There in the vicinity of Sidon, some people brought to him a man who was deaf and could hardly talk. It's a very good translation for an interesting word, mogilala. That's what is involved in the Greek text. We there read, And they brought to him a person who was deaf and mogilalan, and they begged him to lay his hand upon him. Now what's the significance of this term mogilalan, which speaks of having a severe speech impediment? It is an exceedingly rare word. It is found in all of the Greek scriptures, 
and I mean the Greek translation of the Old Testament as well as the Greek of the New Testament only twice. Once in the New Testament here. And once in the Old Testament in the Greek translation of Isaiah 35, verses 5 and 6. And Isaiah 35, verses 5 and 6 turn out to be the key to why Mark wanted to insert these two incidents that no other evangelist picked up. I'll begin reading at 35.3, Isaiah 35, verse 3. Strengthen the feeble hands. Steady the knees that give way. Say to those with fearful hearts, Be strong, do not fear, your God will come. He will come with vengeance, with divine retribution. He will come to save you. Now here is 35, verse 5. Then will the eyes of the blind be opened and the ears of the deaf unstopped. Verse 6. Then will the lame leap like a deer. The NIV says, And the mute tongue shout for joy. But in the Septuagint, the term is mogi lala. And the one with a with a, a very severe speech impediment, will shout for joy. Mark saw in what Jesus did the fulfillment of Isaiah 35, verse 5 and 6. And what is the prelude? Your God will come. He will come and save you. Do you see what he is saying? The significance of Jesus in the midst of the people is that God now begins to bring his word to fulfillment. God comes in the midst of the people and he will rescue them. And the proof is the deaf will hear, the person with the speech impediment will shout for joy, the blind will see. And what a beautiful account this is where leading to confession is the first of these two wonderful signs and the second equally leads to confession, the opening of the eyes of the blind. That brings us to the conclusion of the first half of the gospel, the excitement of Christian confession. And this is a wonderful note on which to close. I invite your attention to Mark chapter 8, 27 to 30. Jesus and his disciples went on to the villages around Caesarea Philippi. On the way he asked them, who do people say I am? And they replied, some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, still others one of the prophets. But what about you? He asked, who do you say I am? Peter answered, you are the Messiah. You are the Christ. Jesus warned them not to tell anyone about him. Now, what is the significance of the fact that Jesus led them in the direction of Caesarea Philippi? It is pagan territory. 
it is to the north. Herod Philip had his territory north of Galilee. I've been at Caesarea Philippi. Very little archaeological work has been done. And all you see are a few columns lying on the ground. But the site is so impressive because you are at the Syrian border and there is the face of Mount Hermon. From underneath the base of the mountain there comes a very cold stream that makes its way down through the center of what had been Herod's capital city. It is a striking location. Melting snows on Mount Hermon keep that stream flowing. I have been there in August, and the stream was flowing. It is a lovely location. But do you know what Caesarea Philippi was remembered for in the ancient sources? For what the Romans called the Cave of Pan. The Greeks would have spoken of the Cave of Bacchus. And I have been outside that cave. It is the place where possibly Jesus took the initiative and said, what about you? Who do you say that I am? Why? Because Jesus knows that confession is going to have to be made in pagan territory. He deliberately leads his disciples there. Because that's the place where confession has to be made. Oh, it's easy for me to say, Jim, let's talk about Jesus. Why, Jim loves the Lord Jesus. So do I easiest thing in the world. Well, let's go down on 2nd Avenue in Nashville. Let's go down to the waterfront. Let's go to an Oilers game. And at halftime, let's mingle with the crowd and want to talk about Jesus. Huh. That's a different matter. Jesus deliberately leads them into pagan territory, because that's where confession has to be made. I think it's also significant that Jesus takes the initiative in inviting confession. The disciples had been with Jesus in a variety of situations, and their response, the hardened heart, unbelief, the inability to understand, probably because they had an inclination that if I understand, this is going to cost me. And the disciples are going to discover this in a radical change of tone and direction that we'll begin to look at next week. But Jesus takes the initiative. It's always that way. The fact that I love Scripture is not my achievement. The fact that I serve the Lord Jesus is nothing in which I can boast. It isn't based on performance. It is based on the grace of God invading my life and compelling me. Woe is me if I do not preach the gospel. See, there is no life for me apart from that. Jesus always takes the initiative in calling us to confession.
The marvelous thing about this account is finally in verse 29, who do you say I am? We have the proper answer to the proper question. And look who makes it. Peter, the man who had hoof and mouth disease. You know, open mouth, insert hoof. How wonderful. And what a surprising ending. For we read in verse 30 that Jesus warned them not to tell anyone about him. Surely, surely, that is a surprise. But what you have to understand is this. Messiah is a fluid term. It takes a variety of shapes. It conveys a variety of hopes and dreams. To say the words, you are the Messiah, is not necessarily to say, I know your character and the call of God upon your life. It is simply to say words that were well known. And as you go through Jewish sources that come from this period, you know that usually it was a marvelous triumphant figure who was in mind. For example, if we lived in the first century, we came to Sunday morning service or Friday evening service as we would. And the scriptures were read to us. Every time there was something negative said, we'd say, that has to do with Israel. Anytime there was something triumphant said, we said, that has to do with King Messiah. No one ever thought to put Isaiah 53 and Daniel 7, 13 and 14 together. That is that Jesus is both Messiah and suffering servant. And Jesus will not permit us to take that term and fill it with our own hopes and dreams. He has come to be the agent of God's salvation, and that's going to cost everything. And he is going to define exactly what it means. We're going to focus upon that in the week to come. I want to share with you that a remarkable article on the Gospel of Mark appeared in Christianity Today for July 13th. It's entitled, What's Wrong with Spirituality? The Gospel of Mark's Prescription for Spiritual Sanity. It's done by Eugene Peterson of Regent College in Vancouver. Peterson, of course, is the one who has done for us the message. It is a remarkable article that I had access to only today. But I commend it to you. Beg, borrow, steal a copy of Christianity Today, July 13th, and read pages 51 to 55 if you want to be very richly informed. But we're going to do our own study of this area, Lord willing, next week, where we'll see that the exhilaration of Christian confession 
is suddenly dampened as Jesus speaks of the cross of being God's Messiah. Let's pray. Our gracious God and Father, thank you that so many of us want to be brought deeper into what your servant Mark wanted us to see. I thank you for every man, woman, and child who is here this night. We thank you, Father, that you have taken the initiative to bring us into this place, that you have led us to make the confession, Jesus is my Lord. I believe in the God who raises the dead. But Father, we want our words to be filled with integrity. We want to know exactly what we're saying. Thank you for your servant, Mark, who continues to entice us, continues to tease us into digging deeper, continues to bring us to the place where we want to know more. Keep us on the edge of our seats. And let the exhilaration of Christian confession be experienced in the midst of paganism. We say this and pray this to the honor of your most powerful and beautiful name. And through Jesus Christ our Lord.